The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. Imagine growing a business with high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, and wildly happy customers. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. Hello and welcome to the Big Technology Podcast, a show for cool-headed, nuanced conversation of the tech world and beyond. Today we're coming to you live from the World Summit AI, so it's a little bit different from our typical recording, but it's going to be a great conversation. Joining us today is Meredith Whitaker. She's the co-founder of the AI Now Institute, a former Google employee who founded Google's Open Research Group and played an instrumental role in Google's walkout, uh, which protested payouts to uh, executives accused of sexual harassment, uh, as well as you know a lot of other activism inside the company, which we're going to talk about at length in the second segment. She's also the Mindaroo Research Professor at New York University. Meredith, welcome to the show. Thank you, Alex. Really happy to be here. So um, let's get started with the social dilemma. Actually, the way this interview came about um, is that I conducted an interview with Tristan Harris, talking a little bit about um, the the criticisms of the social dilemma movie, um, and then my mentions filled up with uh, folks saying, "Hey, you know, why are we asking Tristan? Why don't we, you know, ask some folks who have been critical of these things for a long time?" And your name was mentioned, uh, and that's what brought us together. And I'm thrilled to be able to, you know, to speak with you about this stuff. And I think the social dilemma really is, you know, on many levels, a criticism of. Uh, the attention economy today, which people might say, um, talking a little bit about how algorithms at Facebook and Google, uh, you know, will end up inflaming tensions and keeping us locked to our screens. And the business model ultimately is bad for humanity. So though we're going to be talking a little bit about the social dilemma, this will be new material for folks listening in on the podcast and hopefully for, um, for people out here at the conference as well. So let's begin talking a little bit about it. It seemed like your perspective is a little bit different from Tristan's. You've brought, you're both ex-Google employees, but I'd love to hear like what your take is you know, on the film and its main message and where you think it may have gone right and gone wrong. Great. Yeah, and I want to, I will start this by kind of a high level framing, which may echo some of the comments you saw in your mentions. I think one of the significant weaknesses with the film was that it it sidelined and didn't give a platform to a lot of the people who have been researching and calling out these issues in frankly often more nuanced ways for a very long time. So there are folks like Safia Noble, Sarah Roberts, Ruha Benjamin. Um, I'd look at you know black women like Inasa Crockett and Sadet Harry, who were sort of in 2014 and before calling out racist trolls that were sort of, you know, germinated from message boards like, like 4chan. And there are a lot of people who've actually been looking at some of the issues um, that are, are produced through and amplified through uh, social platforms and the consolidation of power that is now represented in a handful of tech firms. So I think, you know, that was, that was one of the primary issues. And along with, with that erasure, it erased some of the fundamental harms, the way in which a lot of these these platforms and these algorithmic systems reproduce and amplify histories of racism, histories of misogyny. You know, who who bears the harms 
of this type of you know, targeted harassment or you know the way in which algorithms represent our world as Safia Noble has, has shown so brilliantly uh, and who frankly reaps the benefits. And a lot of the people who were being interviewed were you know people who who skipped from the side of, of reaping the benefits, right? Working at a tech company, which I certainly did, um, to being kind of critics of this technology. But a lot of the criticism was drawing very heavily on this earlier work, which I, I think, you know, I would love to see a number of these people on your podcast, and I would love to see these critiques kind of enriched with some of those perspectives. Yeah, and Tristan made the argument, I mean, he definitely addressed this in the show I did with him, and he made the argument that since it was the, these people who had built the software in the beginning, it was going to be a powerful device when you started to show visually the fact that these were the people who had actually, you know, gone on and built it, and now they were saying what we've built is a bit of a Frankenstein, and that's what makes the film powerful. So I'm curious what you think about his defense from that standpoint. Sure. I mean, I think that is an argument, but it doesn't obviate the fact that those are the people receiving a platform, that a lot mm -hmm. of people who are first kind of learning about some of these issues are learning it from that perspective, and that the voices you raise up, the people you represent, matter a lot in these debates, right? And then right. there was, you know, there was a lot of prior art, frankly, this is not, you know, these mm -hmm. are not a brand new set of problems that just sort of occurred to folks, right? There's been you know, decades of work and inquiry around these problems that was largely ignored, dismissed, or considered sort of, you know, that's the byproduct, the externality of ultimately positive disruption, right? And it wasn't really taken seriously until, you know, wealthy white men, frankly, in Silicon Valley began to feel some of the, the mm. effects themselves. Yeah, I definitely see that criticism. I think it's fair. Let's get to the argument itself. Uh, what did they miss? I think you mentioned there wasn't enough of a focus on the victim and enough of a focus on who's going to get rich from this stuff. I did think that they did a decent job. And, you know, I mean, in, in the previous show I did with Tristan, it wasn't all, you know, one big, one big hug. There was definitely, I, I think that we went through the criticism of the film um, a lot. And now I guess like in, in our discussion, maybe I'll, you know, play the other side. Uh, but like there was a discussion of the rise of nationalism. There was a discussion of the rise of isolation and loneliness and polarization in our society. So what did they miss in terms of a byproduct uh, of these algorithms, of these social media platforms in terms of who, who they're hurting? What did they look over? Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I will, I'll highlight a couple of things that I think are really important in any analysis of sort of tech and its social implications. And the first thing that really troubled me was this persistent picture of these types of technologies, these social media feeds, the kind of algorithmic systems that you know, help to curate and surface some of this, this content, et cetera, as almost superhuman, right? You heard phrases like can hack into the brainstem, right? Things that really paint this as a feat of you know, superior technology. This is innovation has reached a point and now it's turned on us, right? And, and we are but these lizard brain plebeians who are now bearing the consequences of this tech. Um, and I think that ignores the fact that a lot of this isn't actually the product of innovation, right? It's the product of a significant concentration of power and resources. It's not progress, right? It's the fact that we all are now more or less conscripted to carry these as part of interacting in our daily work lives, our social lives as being part of, you know, the world around us. And that's only increased during COVID. Um, I think this, this ultimately perpetuates a myth 
that, you know, these companies themselves kind of tell that this technology is superhuman, that, you know, it, it, it is capable of things like hacking into our lizard brains and, you know, completely taking over our subjectivities. Um, and I think that, you know, that also paints a picture that this technology is, is somehow impossible to resist, that we can't push back against it, that we can't organize against it, right? I think, you know, and I think that's, that's a real problem because it, it does sort of put us in the position of being these sort of, you know, these kind of, you know, doughy subjects who are, you know, incapable of resisting. And, and that, again, I, I think there's much more to the story. Uh, right. I want to narrow in on your argument a little bit, because on one hand, you know, you mentioned that these are a product of power. I mean, let, let me see if I can extrapolate, right? Saying that, like, we have to hold our phone, we have to be attached to our computers, because that's what, you know, the corporate structure today make us do, like, we need to be you know, available 24 seven. And then there's, there's an ability for us to organize and push back, you know, as people to say, maybe this isn't exactly what we want. Is that, is that, am I getting it right? Is it the fact that like, when you think about power, there's a corp, there are corporations that are having us use these devices and our ability to organize is something we should be thinking about more of, or, or, or am I off on that? I mean, I think when I think about power here, I'm, I'm taking kind of a historical materialist analysis, right? Um, I'm looking at these firms, right, as these sort of centers of, of almost improbable power at this case. And we have about five, mm. you know, companies in the Western context that are dominating kind of this, you know, kind of big tech, as we call them, right? Um, and these, these firms are a product of the kind of commercialization of computational network infrastructure, so, you know, the internet, and the product of kind of the development of advertising technology and other, um, you know, other platform services that allowed them to gain, you know, a massive foothold with infrastructure, massive data collection pipelines that, you know, anyone who carries this is continually contributing data, you know, often to all mm -hmm. five of these companies. And, and that's a phone for our listeners at home. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, uh, holding up a phone. For, the, for the people not watching yeah. the video, I was holding up my, my cell phone, my Android. Uh -huh. um, um, and so, you know, we, we have to look, these, these companies represent extraordinary powers over our lives, not magical, right? That power is, is reflected in their ability to, you know, to give away platforms for education to all of our school districts, right? To replace other sort of social fora, right? Instead of, you know, having the debate on CNN, we have the debate on, you know, YouTube now to begin to become the spaces for our commerce, for our sociality, etc. And to then financialize and commodify those, um, you know, th those, those roles in that ecology. So I think it's, you know, we, we need to, we need to also analyze um, kind of the material power that these firms have and, um, you know, and, and look a little bit more closely at how these technologies work. Okay, we're gonna head right to break and come back with a little bit of more of a discussion about the activism that you touched on and sort of what, what's happening or what happened inside Google and where it goes today. All right, we'll be back in a moment after this on the Big Technology Podcast here at the World Summit AI. And we're back on the Big Technology Podcast with Meredith Whitaker, a former Google employee and who founded Google's Open Research Group. Uh, and we're talking at the World Summit AI. Um, and, you know, the first part of this discussion, we talked a little bit about uh, the Social Dilemma movie, which, again, 
tends to blame algorithms uh, and the business model for big technology companies for all the world's problems. I think we did a good job discussing that with a bit more nuance talking about um, where that film could have been better. Now I want to talk a little bit about, uh, drill down and talk a little bit more about your activism inside Google, Meredith, because, you know, as a reporter watching this from the outside, I had been speaking to folks and it was always clear that, um, you know, you had played a, a pretty central role in what happened inside the company. Now you can take a look uh, a little bit at, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, uh, you did say you were retaliated against and then ended up leaving the company. We can get into that. Um, and, but now you've been out of Google for a bit. Um, do you think this activism worked inside the company? What does it mean that you're not there anymore in terms of whether it will persist? Yeah, I, I, I certainly think it works, right? But I don't, you know, again, I don't frame that type of organizing as, as, you know, having a goal and then subsiding, right? The goal was both to push back against you know, unethical, immoral business decisions and the, you know, the, the, um, the And those decisions, just for the benefit of the audience, I think we were talking about use of AI in warfare, the decision to, yeah. you know, pay out $90 million to someone who was, you know, accused of sexual harassment. Uh, and then uh, there was, oh, yeah, we yeah. talked about military, we talked about that. Yeah. Um, yeah those, um, those and there was, you know, it was, yes. All of, all of mm -hmm. those things, I think, what, and the uh, the inequitable treatment of the contract right. uh, and hemp yeah. workforce, which made up more than half of our colleagues, mm -hmm. but were not, you know, afforded the privileges of full-time work that you think about when you think about, you know, the, the glorious tech company workforce. Right, right? and the um, scorecard and on that was they ended up not renewing the contract with Maven. I don't think, yeah. uh, I think that people who were uh, also accused of misbehavior inside Google were not awarded payouts. They were sort of summarily fired. Uh, yeah, and then came, the laborers, I think the laborers is still an open question, but, um, but sorry, go ahead. Yeah, they changed some policies in the right direction, um, you know, resistantly. And this is again, you know, this is, a, this is an ongoing struggle. This isn't something you win once by changing executives' minds because they finally see the light, right? This is, you know, again, we're dealing with capitalist logics and capitalist logics dictate that, you know, ultimately the objective function to use an AI term of any firm is, you know, continued revenue growth, continued growth, you know, exponential growth forever over time, right? These kind of impossible goals that we're beginning to question more and more as we see sort of the, 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 the fragility of the planet we live on and the, the harm that type of um, operation in the world has, has has done in so many ways. But, you know, beyond that, I think, you know, we need to continue to, you know, that type of organizing is meant both to win these specific, you know, goals, right? We want to make sure that all of our colleagues have, you know, a dignified job, are not sleeping in their cars, right? Are making a living wage, have healthcare, uh, and that we erase these sort of, you know, two class worker system, right? We really want to do that because that's justice now. While doing that, we also want to build the sort of collective muscle to gain the power to make these decisions ourselves, right? To have a, a mm -hmm. you know more collective decision making and not leave these to you know a handful of people at the very top whose duty is to the board, whose duty is to shareholders, who um, ultimately are sort of calibrating their decision makers making around those capitalist incentives. Right, but I also want to talk about you know who's going to make the 
decisions inside the company. You know, I think laborers, that's something we could both agree on. They should be paid more and treated better. There were some uh, uh, other, you know, uh, like there were some more controversial uh, protests or there were some protests over some more controversial issues inside Google, for instance, like the funding of the conservative political action uh, committee uh, conference in Washington, D.C. Uh, and then there have definitely been debates over Maven and whether, you know, whether it makes sense for tech companies, you know, to work with the military. So I wonder, like, the employee activism definitely takes a certain, you know, political bent and, you know, the leaders of the companies obviously have theirs. Um, but we talked about how these are very powerful companies and should we, shouldn't we have like a more, you know, democratic type of uh, uh, way of deciding what, what these companies should do from a, like much more, from like, you know, doing when they actually implement these policies that have a big impact on the world. What do you think about that? Like, it just, should it be, you know, should it be in the hands of this one group of employees? No. And especially when you're looking at the outside power that a company like Google has, right? The, the type, you know, it's, it's staggering to think about how much extraordinarily intimate information that company has about billions of people, literally, right? This is, you know, mm -hmm. this is, you know, rooms full of Stasi dossiers on each one of us, right? Uh, and it's staggering to think about the way in which that company is able to use that data, that information to, you know, create AI models, to create other services that are then sort of, you know, making determinations in ways throughout our social institutions, right? So there's two levels on which I think, you know, we really need to take this power seriously and recognize, um, you know, the risks there. And certainly what I'm not suggesting is that, you know, a handful of, you know, 100,000 or you know, 200,000 people in the world should be the arbiters of all of those decisions. Um, but, you know, part of the work we were doing organizing was also building, you know, whistleblower networks, right? You know, beginning to build the connective tissue with other social movements so that, you know, we could kind of you know, organized in ways that that hinted at that type of democratic decision making that is ultimately going to be, you know, extraordinarily necessary to, you know, create or recreate technology that you know, could serve the public interest. Um, but I, you know, I, I agree with you that the goal is not just build this sort of, you know, hermetically sealed workplace democracy at Google, right, especially given the issues with representation and the issues with misogyny and racism at that company, right, we don't want just like, you know, a larger collection of the same people making those decisions, um, but that, you know, the politics of that was to open up the space for at least more collective discussion and decision making. And, and ultimately, the goal would be to sort of link with social movements and take a lead. Um, and I think the No Tech for ICE movement is one example where you saw tech workers across the industry sort of taking the lead of people who, you know, do immigration policy, uh, immigration advocacy, um, you know, on the U.S. southern border and really understand the context and what it means to be, you know, kind of hunted and tracked by this technology, communicating that to the people who don't have that experience, but may have an understanding of how these systems work to build a campaign that is then pushing back against the companies who are provisioning those types of systems to ICE. Yeah, and I want to. I'm going to get back to a little bit of the political activism, but I want to just do a quick digression one because you mentioned the Stasi dossiers. Uh, can employees at Google just access, like, basically all your, you know, go into someone's personal information and, and access it? So, so elaborate a little bit on what you mean by the dossier. Is it, is it simply it's a, somebody being represented? Yeah. By, it's a, yeah. So it's someone being represented by numbers. And sorry, go ahead. Yeah. 
it's, it's, I mean, there are people who can access different parts mm -hmm. of that, right? And it's not in that, I, you know, I'm using that as a metaphor because it's more easily graspable than like, mm -hmm. you know, the different shards of a database where different <laughs> parts of that information that may not even be identifiable to me without sort of, you know, matching that to some, you know, whatever. Um, it, you know, yeah, but they, you know, were their kind of permission, were, were they to spend a lot of money and a lot of time reconfiguring their system so everyone could have access, that would be possible, right? Um, they do, you know, collect that information. And, and mm -hmm. you know, at this point, I, I will say, like, it is not easy to access that information. They log that very strenuously. And, and that's in part because, you know, when I started back in 2006, it was a lot easier to access that information yeah. for a couple of incidents. Yeah, it has been interesting speaking to employees who have worked across, let's say, a Google, Facebook, and an Apple. And for, say Facebook is Facebook and Google, they felt was were fairly open, and Apple was like Fort Knox when it came to user data, and it's not part of their marketing. But we could spend an hour talking about that. I want to go back to the politics stuff. Um, so Brian Armstrong, CEO of Coinbase, you know, caused a bit of a stir in Silicon Valley when he banned uh, employee activism, political activism. You know, within the company. And, you know, I, I thought about that and I said, well, we've definitely had like some interesting results from employee activism inside tech companies over the past couple of years. But on the other hand, like maybe it's better for employees, uh, you know, political energy to be channeled through normal, normal political channels versus, you know, trying to work within their company to have them, you know, make statements. I think about like the energy people could put in you know, try to work through like the way that the American political system operates, you know, versus, you know, working to get their CEO, you know, to take a political stance or the other, and maybe the energy would be better placed, uh, you know, working through the traditional political system. So I'm curious what you made of the move uh, and what you sort of think about, you know, how people's energy is, is best spent. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of questions I have about that framing, because when you think about the traditional, yeah, political system, I'm like, are you thinking about it without the voter disenfranchisement that has been part of the far right agenda for 20 years, driven by Karl Rove and others? Or are you thinking about it sort of with that, right? Are you thinking about it before Citizens United when, you know, kind of corporate donations became corporate speech and you had huge, you know, millions of billions of dollars of kind of corporate dark money flooding into these campaigns or before that, right? Like what conditions of normal politics are we talking about that, about such that you know, volunteering to get out the vote would be as effective as, you know, organizing for worker power. And I guess that's a, that's a question we all have to wrestle with, because I think what we're dealing with right now is a extraordinarily atrophied, if not broken, political system that has, you know, been at the receiving end of legal activism and lobbying and a, a really organized campaign by the far right for many, many, many years. And, you know, we're having, right now we're speaking, I think that the Amy Coney Barrett hearing is happening right now, which could further gut, you know, the, the last threads of, you know, kind of voter protections that we have. So I don't, you know, again, I want to, I want to be really careful about that frame. Mm -hmm. um, and well, I, I mean, think, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no. I was just going to say that, like, these are, I mean, I think these are real issues, but like, it's also like, I don't know, like, if you, if folks don't like the way that the political system is operating, you know, it's, it's one thing to, to, you know, say it's wrong. It's another thing to throw up their hands and say, well, this is, you know, it's kind of broken and we can't fix it. And I also wonder if the energy would be well spent trying to push back against some of the things that you're talking about. 
Yeah. And I think, you know, part of trying to push back against that would be things like pushing back against the sort of, you know, slush money that these corporate PACs are pushing into mm -hmm. far right causes that don't, you know, represent the views of the people who are there or represent, you know, arguably the best interests of the public. Right. So, you know, mm -hmm. again, I think we can't ignore the outsized influence, like vastly, vastly orders of magnitude outsized mm -hmm. influence that large corporations have in shaping our political system and the way in which sort of individual goodwill and sort of volunteerism doesn't even, you know, it doesn't even come close to ranking against, you know, the way these companies are able to operate. So, you know, again, this isn't saying give up on the political system, right? Like I think, you know, try yeah. all tools, you know, definitely mm -hmm. vote, right? Get your parents to vote, like do, do the work. But I think, you know, I, I, frankly, I think worker organizing is also politics, yeah. right? I think when you, you know, the Coinbase story, one of the pieces that I often hear missing from this story is that the CEO wrote that, you know, that sort of polemic blog post after he had been challenged by a number of workers who ultimately staged a walkout because he wouldn't say Black Lives Matter. So there was mm -hmm. context already for that, right? And, you know, what do you, what do you make of a CEO who won't say Black Lives Matter during a time of the unprecedented rise in sort of white supremacy and, and, a, and a kind of veering toward authoritarianism, right? Like that no is doubt. political. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, that should be an, an easy, easy one. Um, yeah, it's... <laughs> but it, there's more, by the way, I think that there's more to it than just, you know, volunteerism. Like people can run for office, they can yeah. advocate for laws to be changed. Okay, um, so you're, you got retaliated against, you left Google, I think Claire Stapleton also left inside Amazon, another company I cover, and spoken with Tim Bray, former Amazon yeah. VP, who left because of this. The whistleblowers there were fired. Um, uh, and so I wonder uh, what's going to happen now that it seems like most of the act, I mean, you, not, not only you and Claire, but it seems like a good chunk of people who led the walkout are out of Google now. So what's going to happen if the fact that, like, you know, to these movements, if the fact that a lot of people who led them have now left and maybe a people you know, who might take your, your place, probably feel, feel fearful of, uh, of continuing on given what happened. Well, happily, there's still a lot of organizing going on at these companies that I'm aware of. I think, you know, the good, the good news is that there's a lot of ways to organize with your colleagues that don't involve um, kind of a, a public onslaught that engages the media, which was very much mm -hmm. part of our strategy. But, you know, there are a lot of leaders that, people don't know about that were part of that organizing, right? A lot of people who didn't you know, want to or didn't, you know, for, for one reason or another, didn't want to take the risk of being sort of public with that, right? And, and we each made our own choice. But, you know, again, I don't, I certainly don't think this sort of diminishes the strength of the organizing. And, and I, I would caution against sort of equating visibility with, um, mm -hmm. you know, continuity. There, there's a lot of organizing that continuing and and as you see with you know the, the coinbase right like you know we now have tools in our toolbox across tech like like the walkout right like you know a number of facebook workers who've sort of whistleblown and and written their stories as they leave um that are becoming kind of common sense and i think that's you know that's one of the ways this type of organizing and this type of consciousness you know permeates over time um and and it's certainly you know, there's certainly continuity between the organizing that was happening when I was there and, and what we're seeing now. And I think what we're seeing now is like learning from some of the mistakes that I and others made, right? There's, you know, developing sort of stronger and, and more precise muscles to continue, um, you know, to continue this work.
Yeah, no doubt. And I mean, I covered this a little bit in my book, um, talking about the run up to your your protest action. But um, what was notable about it was that it engaged, there was always dissent inside Google, but it engaged the outside world and the press in particular in a way that, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think had happened inside Google yeah. before. Okay, let's take one more quick break and come back for a discussion about AI ethics and politics. And we will be back in just a moment. And we're back here for one final segment with Meredith Whitaker, who is the co-founder of the AI Now Institute. Uh, and Meredith, you're one of the leaders in the field of AI ethics. Uh, and I feel like we should talk about this because, you know, I think for a lot of people, the term AI ethics has become a bit of a lightning rod where people see it as a way, as a vehicle through which, you know, political views, uh, you know, are potentially injected into the tech companies. And we talked a little bit about conservatives when they see AI ethics, they say, well, is it your ethics or is it our ethics? Um, you know, forgive me, but I'm going to, uh, I don't really like his methods, but I found this one slide that James O'Keefe uh, unearthed was, was interesting. He has this slide talking about how, you know, algorithms are programmed and then media is filtered, you know, through those algorithms and then people are programmed. I'm sure you've seen the slide. Um, and so I'm just kind of curious what you make of, of that slide and whether you think that these algorithms are actually programming people. No, I do not. I find, you know, the entire project he's a part of um, extremely problematic and like very, very, very flimsy. <laughs> right. And I think the, yeah. the critique I offered around the social network and this picture of tech as a kind of, you know, almost godlike force that's able to subdue us mere mortals um, with the power of its algorithms, like, again, no, that's not what's going on. And, and, you know, again, that, you know, that sort of bolsters some of the rhetoric that is ironically coming from these tech companies themselves that are claiming that, you know, these, these systems can do a lot of things that they've never been proven to do. So no, algorithms yeah, don't that was an internal, yeah. Google, that was an internal Google slide, I think. So I, well, I, I, well, I would disagree with the person who, made it i don't you know again like i i don't spend a lot of time um digesting project veritas <laughs> yeah no i look i'm not a fan of the methods as i mentioned yeah. um but like there it, i feel like yeah there are moments where it's worth like taking a look at some of the material they unearth whether yeah, the methods I, I are mean, good or not and then talk about it yeah i don't like that's I don't really, I'm not, I'm less concerned with who said it, although that's definitely, mm -hmm. you know, something we need to take into consideration. Like, mm -hmm. that's not true, right? That's yeah. not how these things work. Um, and you know, it's feeding, you know, dual narratives, right? That I think the mm -hmm. tech companies have one interest in presenting this mm -hmm. technology as infallible because it justifies the mm -hmm. proliferation of this technology into domains where they are going to make money, right? And the mm -hmm. far right has another interest in, you know, presenting these technologies as like scary bogeymen that we mm -hmm. need to be very frightened of because it perpetuates a kind of campaign to subdue these companies and ultimately bend them to the will of the far right. Yeah. And so, so I'm actually curious about that. So can you talk a little bit about how like the company rhetoric is playing into that far right campaign and what, what do you think the far right's goals are? You know, if we talk about like them kind of seizing onto AI ethics as one thing, as a battleground that they're interested uh, in, in, in fighting, uh, fighting on, what do you think they're aiming to do? Well, I think, you know, I don't, I don't see as much of the, you know, the far right kind of 
fought around issues of AI and politics. And I, I also have problems with the term AI ethics because I think it's just mm-hmm. you know almost so broad as to be meaningless. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there was there was organizing we did around a sort of ethics review board that Google Google put together, you know, in in effect to try to sort of pacify some mm-hmm. of the dissents around the choices they were making around sort of AI in the military, et cetera. Right. And on that review board, they had Kay Cole James, who was the head of the Heritage Foundation, a deeply far right organization that has taken, you know, she personally and the organization as a whole have taken a number of fairly virulent anti-LGBTQ positions, right, anti-trans positions. Um, And, you know, when you look at the way that these AI systems constructed through machine learning work, it is very clear to anyone who works with these systems that, you know, again, they aren't aren't intelligent, right? What they do is they process huge amounts of data, whatever data they have available. And from that data, they build a model of the world. So if you show them a bunch of data about cats, they're going to you know, like here's here's a million, 20 million pictures of cats, right? They're going to get some picture of what a cat looks like. And then if you show them a picture of a truck, they're going to be like, that's not a cat. If you show them a picture of a cat, they're going to be like, I predict that this is a cat, right? Like that's how they work, right? So they're given data from the world we live in, right? That represents our past and our present. And very, you know, kind of irreducibly, right? Like um, kind of encodes the values that are in that data, right? So this, these systems very often, and there's now, you know, there's research, Joey Bilamwini, Tim Gebru, Deborah Raji, others have shown this over and over again, that these systems replicate patterns of racism, patterns of misogyny, they sort of encode these assumptions in, you know, their understanding of the world, because of course, their understanding is trained on data that is pulled from that very same world, those very same context. So when you're looking at the politics of AI systems, when you're looking at their implications when you're looking at issues of bias and fairness and yes, even ethics, you need to be really you know, weighting very heavily the views of people who kind of experience those harms of marginalization. So you're looking at you know people who you know understand the dynamics of race and racial racialization, right? People who understand you know issues with anti-LGBTQ bias, right? And so you know a lot of our organizing around these issues was sort of pushing back on you know, the idea that, you know, a board like that was suitable to make these decisions and pushing forward the notion that we really needed to center the voices of people who are most likely to be harmed by these systems. Yeah, there was that case, that very famous case inside Amazon, where they built this recruiting algorithm. And even when they didn't tell the recruiting algorithm uh, what the gender of the person was, it would look for attributes uh, that would indicate that person was a woman and then end up removing them from the search. And it ended up becoming so broken, I think Amazon gave up on even rolling it out. Yeah, that's a classic example, right? And I think, you know, what that also is, is a pretty interesting diagnostic tool to kind of reflect back the persistent misogyny that was sort of encoded in Amazon's hiring practices, right? So we can also think about these systems as sort of, you know, showing us, you know, some of these, these uncomfortable and potentially latent uh, issues that are, you know, part of the construction of the data that, that you know, in this case, mm-hmm. the resumes, the hiring, the, the weighting, the, the performance reviews, et cetera, that train this, this algorithm. Yeah. Now, there is a field that you are in which looks at these issues. And then you also have the U.S. government, which seems, you know, interested in sort of taking it into its own hands. We're about to see, it seems like, uh, 
a push from the Department of Justice under Bill Barr to, you know, attack Google uh, in some way. I mean, obviously, there's going to be real antitrust issues that they're looking at, but they're also probably going to be looking at the way that Google treats conservative content. That's at least the, you know, the the previews that we've seen. That's what it seems like it might mm-hmm. be. So I wonder, do you worry that like you're even if the field that you're in does good work, that the government with the, you know, will come in with blunt force and end up rolling some of it back or changing it or actually, you know, even in bad faith, manipulating the way that these companies treat content and treat algorithms? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, again, these are, you know, these are political battles. And what the, you know, the far right and the sort of, you know, proto-fascist government is saying right now is that if you de-platform hate speech, if you de-platform, you know, Nazi content, if you de-platform the sort of, you know, propaganda arm that we are, you know, that we have kind of implemented through these these systems, then we are going to come after you, right? That's the, you know, there has there is zero proof that anti-conservative bias exists. In fact, you mm. know, these companies bend over backwards to not enforce their terms of service for people like President Trump, right? But you see that, you know, you see that, um, you know, why why during the the kind of big tech hearings did you know Jim Johnson and and Representative Gertz spend so much time just like kind of bloviating about this, right? They're setting up a narrative that is effectively communicating to these companies, don't touch this content. And I think, you know, again, that gets back to the fact that this is organized, that there's actually, mm-hmm. you know, there there is money going in to the propagation of this type of content through these networks, right? It's not magic, it's organization and it's funding. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be a very interesting uh, couple of months ahead as we see sort of first this Department of Justice action, maybe the outcome of what we have seen from the House, uh, you know, subcommittee on antitrust, and then, of course, the election. Okay, why don't we end with one question? Uh, Let's see. So you tweeted today, which will be tomorrow or whatever, a week later by the time this airs, but you said... um, you know, if you could, you, you, uh, an interview question you asked to people is if you could shut down the inner, the internet, would you? So, uh, if you could shut down the internet, would you? <laughs> oh, well, one of the things I, I also tweeted when I tweeted that interview question, which is something I used to ask at Google when I was interviewing mm-hmm. people, um, was that what I was looking for was, who's, was someone who would actually take that question seriously, would think about, you know, in total, do I, think this is sort of a positive or a, 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 a negative force. And I think, you know, and, and I would work with people to sort of think through that, right? You know, what would be the reason for shutting it down? What would be the reason for, you know, keeping it on, right? All things considered. And I think my view on this is that, you know, it's going to be really hard to turn these sort of computational network technologies. So like the internet plus everything that's been built on top of these, you know, these original protocols and all of the infrastructure that was built out and is now mainly privately owned to, um, you know, to carry this content, et cetera, all the devices. It's going to be really hard to sort of repurpose that to good, given the consolidation of power that is right now sort of dominating those infrastructures. And, you know, frankly, given these sort of neoliberal capitalist incentives that are, you know, driving those who dominate these infrastructures. Um, so I think it's, you know, I think it's worth fighting. I think they're, you know, I'm certainly not, you know, anti-computers or anti-technology, mm-hmm. but I think we have to recognize these as questions of power and control and not questions of the hypo- hypothetical benevolent, 
uses of these technologies when you know we can look at you know what generally actually happens when you know people with a certain set of incentives are the ones governing uh, their use and utility. Yeah, and I think that the good news is right now we're starting to have these conversations in a way that we weren't a couple of years ago. And I think your work, Meredith, is a big reason for it. So we do appreciate it. And it's always great to be able to, you know, talk about this stuff and go deep into it. And, and you know, hopefully it leads to more and more discussions. Um, okay, I think that's going to do it for our time. So I just wanted to say thanks everybody out there at the World Summit for AI. We appreciate you tuning in. Uh, if you like the podcast, we'll have more of these discussions. We do it every Wednesday. You can go to Big Technology Podcast in your app of choice, and it will hopefully be there. We just got on Stitcher, so we're there too. Um, and for everyone listening, you know, through one of those podcast apps, uh, if this is your first time and you liked it, please hit subscribe. If you're a longtime listener, uh, if you could give us a rating, that would help with discoverability. So we appreciate that. And most of all, thank you, Meredith. Uh, it's been great sitting down here and speaking with you about these very important issues. And I hope to continue the conversation. So thanks for uh, being on the show. Thank you, Alex. Thank you all. Have a great day.